Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to leading professional investors and business leaders about their investment journeys and we also take a peek into their personal investment portfolios and we try to understand how they analyze investment opportunities, what companies and assets they invest in and whether they have more hits than misses. And the idea is to identify a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Grant Nader. He is a portfolio manager at Benguela Global and he's also applied his trade at many other institutions, including Effectus Capital Management, Kaizen Asset Management, and Renaissance Capital. And I see Investec also on the list. Grant, thank you so much for your time today. First of all, just tell us where do you come from and about which careers did you dream when you were still young? Interestingly, I was always drawn to the markets, and I think it comes from my dad was one of those with the newspaper, had those couple of hundred shares on the, the newspaper open every day and he would listen to the market talk on the radio and I got drawn into it and he kind of got me and my brother to buy a couple of shares. When was this? So I'm a Joburg born and bred. This was in probably in the late 80s is when I sort of first encountered equities and shares and what is all this stuff and I got a few shares I think gifted to me by my dad and of course it was a good time in the market for a couple of years and suddenly things are going up so you get excited and start opening the newspaper every day. So I used to enjoy paging through the business section and this. So you were still at school when you... I was still at school. I was standard 7, 8. By today's name is grade 9 and 10, I think. So yeah, that was when I was interested. And I always loved it since then. I always loved the markets. When you decided to become a CA, that was in the back of your mind. I want to channel my qualification into managing people's money. Well, ironically, it wasn't because... In those days, you know, we didn't have the information availability we have now. I love the market, but it never occurred to me it was a profession. It never occurred to me that it was an opportunity. So I ended up studying economics and law to start. And I was studying investment law, well, commerce and mercantile law, because I thought that's how I can be in like finance and investments type of broadly. Then I realized as I was working my way through an LLB that that's probably not really what I want to do. After doing a few practical sort of clinic sessions and that. It was definitely not what I wanted to do. And I came across this conversion course that UCT offers, which allows you to convert to a chartered accountant. It's a two-year course. You do a BCom and a postgrad in like two years. So then I moved. I went to UCT. I finished my LLB. And I did that for two years. And then I did articles at KPMG, where I worked in the financial services department, auditing treasuries and investment banks. And I started to see that you can get closer and closer to these things. So I started to open these doors that I never thought were open to me. I guess I just never explored it. It's a problem with youth, you know. And that's always a good story when young CAs, they need to go do articles, they do auditing work, and then they get dispatched to these wonderful companies, some very well-known companies, some not so well-known. That's the first time you actually see 
what those companies do and how they operate. And it's so interesting that in many cases, many of those young auditors are being poached by those companies to come and work in their accounts department or perform other responsibilities. Was that the route you followed? That's exactly what happened to me. So I was auditing Nedcore Treasury and Nedcore Investment Bank, the derivative desk, because I loved the derivatives because it was all about the shares and the options on the shares, equity derivatives. And I finished articles and I just picked up the phone and I phoned one of the guys there, a guy by the name of David Baven. He was an Australian. And I said, look, are you any interest? And I started Instructed Equity Derivative Products. That was where my first gap came. And from there, I moved on to the equity derivative trading desk. So I've always had this enjoyment of managing money for others, but it started off in equity derivatives, not in actual equities. But that was just how it defaulted. But I was loving it. I was where I wanted to be. And it was an exciting journey. Yeah, those desks are quite infamous in many ways, but you learn a lot. You said you had shares when you were still at school, paging through the newspaper and, and making calls on that. But when did you actually start to invest? And invest is a broad term because I don't know if equity derivatives, you can call investing, that's probably more trading. But when did you actually start to say, listen, I want to build a long-term portfolio. I want to build sustainable wealth. When did that process start? So I started that during articles. As I said, was following the market closely, was investing there. And then when I moved on to the trading desk, it sort of took a little bit of a backseat because things were a bit more short-termism. And it was more exciting, but actually I always felt like the short-termism of it was a bit of a sort of like a frustration. We always had to know the companies we were trading around, but you could never take that long-term view as easily. And so even then I was itching for the ability to hold and invest longer term. So we did have uh, personal account portfolios. I was investing for myself, but it wasn't as much of a focus because I was doing it for a living as well. So I was doing it on the side, but it was a secondary focus, but it was building up slowly. And then over the years, I started to increase that as I started to increase my sort of timelines of how I see the world. And then as I was always started to say, I need to move to the buy side, which is what it's called. The sell side is the banks and the stockbrokers, and they all sell their research to the buy side or the guys who are actually the investors who manage the money for the pension funds and that. And seeking that buy side was calling me. And so I moved there in, you know, post 2010 in around 2013. That was when things started to move in that direction. Just explain exactly what is the difference between trading and investing? It's a great question. And I think the lines are very often blurred for many investors, particularly retail investors, maybe even some professional investors. Trading should be about shorter term, more predefined everything. Define your entry point, define your exit point, define what you're trying to get out of this trade and when you're going to walk away, know when it's going to go wrong, know how much you're willing to risk. Then the trading is a lot shallower. So you don't need to know deep fundamentals of the company. You don't need to worry about where the company is going to be in five or 10 years time and their market share, etc. You're typically worrying a lot shorter term it could be a, as long as a month or three months or even six months, but it's never out into the years. So with investing, you actually want to look and ask yourself, this is where I've moved and understand fundamentally, is, is it a great company? Do I want to hold this for a long period of time? Can I sleep at night with this in my portfolio without worrying about what's going to happen to the business? So as an investor, you think more deeply on the actual fundamentals of the business that you're buying. You're an owner in a business. And I think we don't realize that enough. It's not a piece of paper or a light on a screen. 
you're actually a business owner in these companies. And that's the different mindset that you should have as an investor. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have rights as a shareholder too. I bought <laughs> shares for my daughter in Woolies many years ago. And she walked in there. She was about nine years old. And she said, listen, I'm a part owner of this business. <laughs> she told the cashier. And I thought, no. So when did you move to the long only side, the pure long-term investment side of the investment world where you currently are at Banguela and some of the previous yes. asset managers you've worked at? So the long only shift happened in 2014. So it's been 10 years, basically. Along the way, I have you know, been involved in hedge funds at the same time but always on the long-only side from that point as well. That's where you get to just think slightly longer term. You get to really make more informed decisions, I would argue. Yeah, it's been a really enjoyable ride. It's been a great journey in terms of learning. And I think the learnings from trading are actually very useful, in fact, because I understand the world from both sides, and I can see the pros and cons of both sides of the industry. I'm very happy where I am. But I don't think the lessons learned are not useful to me. I think they're very useful. Yeah, lessons learned. I think in many ways, this market represents uncharted territory. I don't know if ever I've heard market commentators use the term, it will depend on interest rates and (laughs) U.S. interest rates. And it's been the theme for the past two years. And before that, the term was quantitative easing. And I can't even remember what it was before that. Maybe will the bank survive in the 2008-2009 crisis? But has the way you value investment opportunities changed due to so much more noise being in the market? So it shouldn't change that. But I think it changes the shorter term picture. So if you're worrying about where markets are going to go in a few months time, it matters. All that noise. You know, if you want to be a proper investor, you've got to try and sift through the noise. To be honest, if interest rates go up another 25 bips or 50 bips or down 25 or 50 bips, it shouldn't make any difference to the fundamentals of the company you're investing in. However, it may lead to price volatility in the share. And we confuse price volatility with the underlying company and the business that you're buying into. That important point that you always need to remember as an investor. You confuse volatility with uncertainty. 100%. Let's go back to your early days as an investor. Name a few of the first shares you ever bought. Maybe the share you actually bought with your own money. So I bought a share. We had a bit of a gold rush in South Africa back in the, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s or around there. And there were all these gold exploration companies listing on the JC. And the moment there would be a name thrown out, everyone would buy it. So I bought a company called Target Mining Exploration. I think it was associated with Anglo Vol Gold or something at the time. We did really well. It went up nicely. You know, I was patting myself on the back. I thought I was a rock star and it was a couple of these. But then, of course, the rug was pulled around and a lot of these companies just fell out of bed. I can't remember how long that took to play out, but... You know, you started to get a sense of it's easy to make money when everything's going up. It's very different when you have to separate one company from the next. So that was quite a good lesson for me. So you smiled all the way up and frowned all the way down. You didn't sell at the top. No, I did not sell at the top. You know, you get that feeling of, well, it'll come back. That's hope. (laughs) Yeah, hope is not an investment strategy. It is too often an investment strategy. And then later on, did your selection of companies change or your thinking about potential opportunities? Yes, definitely. I started to learn. And to be honest with you, this actually stayed with me my whole career, whether I was trading or investing. You want to own great businesses. Actually, 
short term, it doesn't matter as much. But long term, you need to own businesses that are fundamentally good businesses and businesses that can grow. Because a business that is cash generative and has a high dividend yield, but that dividend or that cash doesn't ever grow, just becomes a value trap. So there's a big difference between a value and a value trap. And there's also a lot of comfort and safety and ability to sleep at night by owning a good business, like a fundamentally sound business. That was relevant when I was in equity derivatives, and it's equally relevant today, if not more relevant. What is a great business? So to my mind, <laughs> and of course, at you know, Benguela, we have, we have a quality definition that is very rigorous and all those details. But for the average person, it's a business that is generating enough cash that debt's not going to become a problem if rates go up or if there's a slowdown in the economy. It's a business that has the ability to grow if there are opportunities to deploy their cash. So the best example is our retail landscape. You've got ShopRite, Pick and Pay, Spa. There's no growth in South Africa. We all know that. The retail pie is not growing. Most markets are not growing. The good businesses are able to find ways to grow and innovate. Innovation is something I've really learned over the last 10 years. Even though there's not a lot of growth opportunity on the face of it, they can eat competitors' market share, they can find new business opportunities, or they can grow by improving their own internal operations. So some ability to drive earnings, because over the long term, consistent earnings growth is what makes a good company. So consistent cash flow and earnings growth. But in the retail sector, it's interesting. You have a company like ShopRite, Mm -hmm. who is absolutely shooting the lights out. I think they're opening a store a day virtually. And then you have Pick and Pay, who is in the news currently. They need to go to shareholders to get more money just to, you know, maintain their operations. It's not a happy place. So even in a sector with high barriers of entry, there are good and bad and exceptional companies. Exactly. You just need to identify them before that is so evident. Well, it's been evident for a long time. People just have been willing to overlook it. You could have seen ShopRite for the last few years has been gaining market share. They've been out innovating the peers. Look at the online delivery. Look at the capturing of market share and volume growth that none of the others had. It's there. You just have to look for it. Look for the signs of innovation. Look for the signs of operating at a superior level. Pick and pay has been declining at the core for a long time, but it's been masked by other information, you know, by boxer and clothing. Mm. They didn't make that information obviously available until recently. And then once it became visible, people realized that the tide had gone out and they were a little naked. But 10 years ago, the differences weren't that obvious. Pick and Pay was actually performing really well, maybe longer than 10 years ago. After Sean Summers, I think he left mid-2000s. Mm. Pick and Pay was in a decent shape. How many retail specialists were able to identify these two divergent growth trajectories these two companies would take and act on it because that probably is the skill you need to have in this business. Yes, and I think what's happened is if you look short-term, pick and pay has outperformed this year or underperformed that year and it hasn't been obvious, but the long-term trend was there. Richard Brasher came in in the early 2010s to try and turn it around. After 10 years, they still haven't really moved the margin in pick and pay. It's almost half ShopRite's margin. They've cut costs. They've done everything they can, and the margin's still in the twos. I mean, that is a razor-thin margin business, and it's being exposed now. So for me, it's always been visible, but the share price movement in the interim, as people expect things are going to improve or they think things are going to change, it hasn't been as obvious at all times. But the long-term trend is intact, and that's the difference between a good company and a company that's perhaps average and trying to get better. Another way to look at it, there's a recovery opportunity. 
because sometimes yes. companies really perform well and they can be turned around. And as you've said, there have been a few attempts by Pick and Pay to do that. You yes. just need to probably pick the right yes. one, and that's not easy. Yeah. That is a powerful value creation mechanism, is improving quality. Companies that are getting it right. But always be careful as an investor, what are you allocating to that opportunity? Is it sort of a risk bet or is it a sure bet? You don't always have to bottom pick to find that turnaround. And I think we too often buy the stocks that are struggling because they look cheap in the hope that they turn around. You should have a core portfolio built around quality companies and then you play around the edges on some of these turnaround strategies and that. It shouldn't be the foundation of your portfolio. I think that's a struggle. I'm sure you have your own personal investment portfolio in addition to your official retirement savings. I think that is number one if you want to save, start with saving or contributing toward a pension or a retirement annuity. But if you have money left over, you know, put it into a discretionary portfolio. And then I think when you have skin in the game, you start to learn. Just take us through your personal portfolio and how you've approached it and maybe tweaked it as the years passed by. Yeah, absolutely. So, The important thing is the diversification mantra is a real and valid statement. Don't ever have too much of your portfolio in any one company. Sometimes you'll put a lot into one or you'll have one that does well and it just grows and grows and grows and it becomes a huge percentage of the portfolio. And then you actually start to carry a lot of risk that you actually don't need and isn't really justifiable. So I'd say you should have more than 15 stocks, maybe 20, 25 to get enough diversification but not 50 because then you've got no idea what's going on in there. You want a spread of sectors as well. And typically I will always build and own what I believe are the better stocks in each sector, the ones that have the highest quality of business and also the better prospect for growth and how you see the prospects and quality, obviously in a number of metrics, but the innovation sense of the culture of innovation in the company matters a lot to me as well. And I think that leads into the potential for growth. Some examples of that. If the I question. want to push you now, yes. <laughs> Can you be more specific? So in the financials, I've always owned and continue to hold a Capitec. It is a volatile ride at times, like all good companies. Even Apple has fallen 50% a number of times. So you've got to understand if it's a good business and it remains a good business, don't sell it. You know, this thing of compounding is a real thing. Don't get caught by selling on the lows and buying on the highs. And when you buy a company, make sure you clear in your mind, is it a long-term investment or is it a trade? If it's a long-term investment, too many people's investments turn into trades and trades turn into investments when they go against them. So that's one of the biggest mistakes many people make. I'd like, you know, for example, you want sectors that have some visibility or some sustainability. Woolworths I like because I like the food, I like the product, the offering there. ShopRite is another one. I mean, in South Africa, the universe is quite small. So it's kind of obvious what the best companies are. Bidcorp is another great company. You just need to have these in your portfolio. Richmond, stocks that give you some global exposure that have nothing to do with the South African economy. You need a handful of those, at least. So you are invested in individual stocks as opposed to maybe unit trusts, or is the uh, a combo? So it would be a combo, but for the unit trust portion, I would more typically end up in ETF. Because especially now we're quite privileged in South Africa, we can invest in global ETFs. And it's a number one imperative as a South African when I talk about diversifying. It's not just diversifying on the JSC, it's diversifying into global exposure. You can get an ETF exposing you to the S&P, the FTSE, the NASDAQ, the Indian market, which is growing at 7% a year. So it's imperative. You can't stock pick all these markets on your own at home as an investor. 
build some of that. You know, you can look at a country the same way you can look at a company. If the fundamentals are sound and the runway for growth is strong, you can own exposure to that country broadly by owning the top stocks in that country. So you can also think about it like that. It's not always about having to find a gem in a specific company in the middle of another country that you can't research as a DIY investor. I think that's important. So diversify across those metrics, diversify currency exposure. Mm. We're very bound. It's almost a career hedge by earning some technology and by earning dollar-denominated investments. Because if you think about how exposed we are to technological change, who knows what job we're going to lose with generative AI, as if the doom and gloom is hard to be believed. You know, so own some of the future as well. Give yourself the ability to benefit if it plays out. If you could go back and speak to Grant, the recently qualified CA Grant, with stars in his eye, I want to invest, I'm going to be the best derivatives trader ever, and I also want to grow my own wealth. What advice would you give him with what you know currently? Yeah, it's a good question. There's a few, if I can list a few rules, <laughs> if you like, that I've learned over time. The number one is invest consistently. Even if it's a small amount, don't wait until I have 100,000, then I'm going to put it into the market and buy a stock. No. If you've got 1,000, put 1,000 in. If you've got 1,000 next month, put 1,000 in. Because there is nothing more powerful than compounding. And if you buy good companies, so the first point is start investing. It doesn't matter how small it is. When I started, you could only buy 100 shares. And in a big company that was a 500 rand company, no one could afford to buy 100 shares if you were a retail investor. So now you can buy a fraction of a share through the easy equities of the world. So buy something. That's how you learn. Make sure you put your money at risk. That way you'll learn, number one. Number two, buy great companies. If you buy a great company, they are doing the work for you. Buy them and hold them as long as you can. As long as they remain a good company, don't sell it. doesn't matter if the market goes up or down because that company is compounding earnings. There's a whole management team there compounding your money for you as a shareholder in that company. But if you're always trying to sell it and find the next one and sell it and find the next one, you never let that compounding play out. And there's nothing more powerful than compounding. 7% a year doubles in 10 years. 15% a year doubles in five years. I mean, those are incredible rates of return if you give it to a good company and let them do the work for you. The other thing is don't worry too much about price. If you're long-term in your thinking, if you're looking over 20 or 30 years, the company's earnings over 20 or 30 years are... 99% of the value driver of the company, not the price you pay on day one. So you just keep buying over time, the price will matter less and less, and the company's performance over the long term will matter the most. So you get that ability to compound. Be clear whether you're investing or trading. A lot of people have a trade, they buy a stock, it goes down 20% and it becomes a long-term investment. Instead <laughs> of cutting their losses, they just put it in the bottom drawer and close their eyes and hope it comes back. I mean, if you think of the EOHs mm. of the world and the Steinhoffs and the transaction capital, guys got or caught. something even more which lost money over a longer period, like Metal, for example. Yes, exactly. I mean, that is not a good business. And take your pain. The other thing is when you're investing is be very clear. Don't let your investments become a trade. If you buy a company and it does well quickly and you make 20% in three months, the reaction is they sell out of the company. Take profit. That's now a trade. Once you're out of a good company and it keeps going, people find it very hard to buy back in. The psychological aspect of that is, well, I can't buy it at 120 because I sold it at 110. And then the stock's at 200 before they force their way to buy it back in. So that's also something that destroys value. Mm. Just hold on to the good companies if they're an investment. However, 
If it's a bad company or it's going bad, just get out. Those are the kind of things that we also don't do. We hold on to the losers. You want to cut your losers and hold on to your winners as I long as possible. Many people, if they desperately need money for some reason, they would sell their best performing stocks and yes. leave their poor performers. Yes. So the psychology of investing is an incredibly powerful force. Mm. After all these years, I still have to fight my psychology every day as an investor. And it's important to understand that the machines can calculate and do all the numbers and that, but they don't have the psychology of a human. So we have to be very careful. We have to know yourself, know your bad habits and your good habits and just manage your portfolio within a set of rules rather than within a set of emotions. Lastly, and I think many people listen to the podcast just for the following two questions. The first one, what has been the best investment you have ever made? The one that has made you the most money? (laughs) I hadn't had time to think about that. Mm. Okay, let's go on to the second question. I'll come back on. What is the worst investment you have ever made? Um, The worst investment I ever made was probably buying some Bitcoin. (laughs) You know, that crypto is just noise and distraction. And, you know, fundamental When did you buy it? I bought it in 2019 or 2020 when it was one of the run-ups and then it was looking good and I thought I was a rock star. And then it had a big pullback and I thought, what am I holding this for? I don't even know what it does. And then I just cut, sold out and walked away because it didn't have a fundamental investment case. And so I locked in the losses and that was that. I walked away from that. So that was if you held it and hoped it would have sufficed. (laughs) We all know hope is not a strategy, (laughs) but it's very often employed nonetheless. In terms of winners, I mean there's been a number of good ones. I can't think off the top of my head. Capitec stands. Where did you get into Capitec? I think that's probably the best So many years ago, probably in the early twenty tens, I bought some, but you know, having portfolio that moves over time, I can't remember the exact number. Mm. But on the whole, that's the other thing is always try and hold some of it. So, yes, I've sold some and bought some and sold some and bought some, but I wish I just bought some and held on to it. And that's another lesson that time has taught me. 2020 hindsight. Yes. What if, but anyway. That's my lesson to my younger self. Grant, thank you so much for coming in today and for sharing your insights. And yeah, I think you've got a very solid approach and I think many young people would be wise to follow it. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rake. That was Grant Nader. He's the portfolio manager at Benguela Global. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights.